dreams are one of the great mysteries of science. In their bizarre complexity, they can reveal deeper truths about who you are at the most basic level. Researcher at Harvard University and the world's leading expert on sleep paralysis, Dr. Balan Jalal. For returning guests, welcome back. And for those who are new here, I'm Andrea Samadhi, author and educator with a passion for learning, understanding difficult concepts, and then breaking them down so we can all use and apply the most current research to improve our productivity and results in our schools, our sports environments, and modern workplaces. On today's episode number 224, that was postponed from April due to our guest's busy travel and work schedule, we're going to go beyond where we've ever gone before on this podcast and cover some topics that you might have questions about, like I did. And I found Dr. Belangelal from Harvard, the world's leading expert on sleep paralysis, who's published 48 peer-reviewed academic papers, as well as a book from Cambridge University Press to answer our questions. We've covered dreams before on episode 104 with sleep scientist Antonio Zadra and his book, When Your Brain Dreams, exploring the science and mystery of sleep. But I left out some parts of the dream world that I thought might be too weird for this podcast until I heard Dr. Jalal connecting the brain to our dreams. And this changed everything for me. I mentioned on episode 211 that when I was first introduced to Dr. Jalal, his team sent me an email with his Harvard bio and write up about his book on dreams, but little did I know that his work would open my mind up to places I've never been before as I began to explore sleep paralysis, something I've experienced just once, which was enough for me. I just had no idea there was a name for it and lucid dreams that I thought I was flat out crazy for having and then learning how my brain operates while dreaming, which revealed more truths about who I am at the core than I knew before coming across Dr. Jalal's work. I've gone on to study English scientist and professor of neuroscience, Matthew Walker, and often tuned into his podcast that's all about sleep, the brain, and the body, just to see how we can all learn more ways to improve our sleep, which we all know is one of the top five health staples. I did create this podcast to bring credibility to some of the concepts that used to be considered weird, but now science and fMRI scans show why these practices that 20 years ago were not mainstream are now commonly used at our schools and work environments. Before watching Dr. Jalal's lectures, I don't think I would talk openly about the experiences I've had with the dream world. But I thought if I've experienced these things, what if you have also wherever you're listening to the podcast in the world? And perhaps hearing from Dr. Jalal what these bizarre things called dreams actually are, why we have them, and see if they can expand our self-awareness and open up our world to a new level and even be used in a way to improve our productivity, creativity, and results in our waking life. My mentor, Bob Proctor, was always challenging me to stop looking at life through the keyhole. And instead, he'd say, open up the door and expand your level of awareness. He'd say, once the mind's been expanded, it will never go back to its original state. 
Awareness is not something you lose. When Dr. Jalal and I were working on rescheduling our interview, he asked me how early on a Sunday I'd wake up since he's currently in Europe. And my response to him was that I'd wake up at midnight to speak with him because I think this topic is fascinating. And I know it will help us to all expand our thinking. Let's meet Dr. Balan Jalal and see if he can shed some light with what neuroscience can tell us about our dream world. Well, welcome Dr. Jalal. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and helping all of us to expand our thinking about what happens in our dream world, especially knowing that this time takes up one third of our life and how important sleep is. Welcome. Well, thank you, Andrea. My pleasure. Uh, love to, you know, happy to be here. Well, thank you so much. And we were just kind of chatting. I know that you've been busy recording your second TED Talk and that you're in Copenhagen right now and you're visiting family, right? That's right. I'm, you know, I'm just resting up after a long semester with a lot of stuff going on, you know, so just, yeah, just with family and my second TEDx talk. And so, yeah, just just relaxing at the moment, you know. Good. Well, I so appreciate that you're taking the time to do this because I know how hard you work and I follow your lectures. And so this insight here is going to kind of help expand our awareness on the dream world. So I just want to thank you and appreciate your time here. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. So I just want to open up, Dr. Jalal, because I watched one of your recent podcasts and I had no idea how much I was going to learn from you. It was mm -hmm. the Ranveer show with that guy, Ranveer. He seemed like such an open-minded person. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Was, he, was he interesting to, to talk to? Definitely. He was very fun. He was very open-minded, you know, asked very interesting questions. And yeah, yeah you know, I, I love talking to him. Yeah, he had a very sort of fresh perspective on things. Yeah, it opened up my mind for sure. And on this podcast interview, you mentioned your beginnings. And I think it's really important to share where you started because you do have humble beginnings. And then maybe how you went from your humble beginnings to actually get into neuroscience so people can see your path. The whole path there. Well, it's a, it's a big question, Andrea. Yeah. Um, how did it start? Well, yeah, you know, my parents, they came, they're Kurdish originally from Iraq. And they came first to Bulgaria and we lived there. I was a baby. I was born there about, you know, we were about six months. Uh, I was about six months old, infant, baby. We moved to Copenhagen and uh, yeah, you know, I was in a refugee camp to begin with. And then, you know, grew up in a tough neighborhood in, in Copenhagen over there. And, you know, I didn't do very, I did actually do very poorly in school. I was a very bad student. I mean, I think, you know, just given circumstances, nobody really cared about school. You go out in the streets, you see poverty, you see your people, you know, taking drugs and things like that. You don't, you don't think about school and, you know, being a, you know, uh, you know, star student or anything like that. And also I think um, this is a practical thing. You are just thinking about survival. How do I like make money? Like, how do I grow up and just being able to provide for my family and things like that. And um yeah, so that's how it started for me. I guess um, by the time I hit high school, I got really interested in science, but for for its own sake. So I started just to sort of look into books initially, and it was kind of a surprise to me because, and I always hated books. I thought books were so boring. You know, I'd rather hang out in the streets and just play soccer and things like that. 
but I then started to sort of look into books and I found, wow, you know, psychology and the brain is kind of interesting, you know, learning about why we do certain behaviors, you know, why we think, think in certain way and how the brain works. And then I realized I was just reading and reading more books and I would just hang out in the, you know, the library instead of, you know, the streets, you know, and uh, yeah, so that, that was really cool. And I, I was kind of hiding it, you know, it's kind of like I was supposed to be the cool kid in school, you know, like the, you know, and then how do you kind of like walk with a swag and like having books in your, you know, it kind of didn't fit, but, you know, I made it work. And then eventually, you know, I, I ended up realizing I'm spending more time with books and science and why not pursue this further? And I realized when you actually like the material, you know, and, and what you're doing and you can become really good at it, you know, and I had this obsessive personality or, you know, as a, as a trait. So it was very easy to get really sort of absorbed in that world. So this is how it started for me, you know, just going from like an environment where not much is expected of you, like you'd expected for you to just fail or just minimally just survive. And then realizing, well, passion and ambition, you know, when it's driven by a really intrinsic motivation can really, you know, uh, take you places. So that's kind of my story. I love that story because in education, we're always looking for, it's not the students that stick out that are always talking. It's the ones that are like falling down behind that you want to lift up and say, you can do it too, because the potential is so vast for what we're all capable of, you know? Yeah, I mean, think about it, all these, all these, you know, uh, seats, all these students that, you know, potentially could be the next Einstein or Newton, just like, you know, being there in your, in your class and being able to pull them up and, and, you know, see them flourish. And I think, um, yeah, I think there's so much, so much there if we, if we look deeper, you know? Yeah. And so then how did you meet now? Am I going to say this right? Dr. V.S. Ramachandran? Is that right? Yes, Ramachandran, Rama. Yeah. How did we meet Rama? Well, Rama is, is the character. He's, he's a very good, uh, he's been a good mentor to me. And, and uh, how did I meet him? So it goes far back. So when I was in Egypt, initially, uh, I was studying, you know, psychology over there. And, and I, you know, I was doing well, I was trying to do well and realize, okay, I can, I can actually get good grades, you know, just from being in class and doing things. And then I ended up in California. And I, I knew about Rama from the books, but, you know, not really that much. And then I was taking his class, you know, back when I was an undergraduate student, you know, I was taking his class, I was sitting in the front row, and I was just like, always just asking questions. So, so whenever he had something, I'll just raise my hand, you know, and Jalal, Jalal, and he would call me by my last name, by the way, you know, because in, in India, in his part of India, you know, they use your, your last name as your fir- first name. So it's kind of funny. So yeah. you say Bilal instead of Baland. And uh, his name is Billy Anur Ramachandran, but we call him Rama. You really want to go all the time is Rama, you know, Rama. So, so yeah, Jalal, Jalal, and I was just asked questions. And then it became like a, just a conversation. Like the whole class was just me, ha- me and him having conversation. And there's like 200 students behind us. And we're just talking about the brain and about science and all these kind of things. And then one day I said, look, um, I think I was actually walking with him to his parking lot, to his car, just walking, talking about science. And I said, Rama, can I join your lab? And he said, yeah, why don't you just come over? And I ended up joining his laboratory. And yeah, it was just magical. You know, when you walk into his laboratory, it's kind of weird because you expect this world, you know, at the time he was just, well, he still is, but he was just a superstar in science and neuroscience. You go into his lab and it's like, there's like all these 
funny things, you know, like uh, plastic limbs and, uh, you know, dinosaur skeletons and, you know, fossils and all these kind of things, right? And it just looks, it's like a museum and, and, and it's, it's interesting. So it's got really inspiring and, and just spending time in his, in, in his lab and getting to know him and seeing his passion for science and then becoming really good friends with him and ending up spending more time with him outside the lab than in the lab. And I'm just this undergraduate student and I'm just learning from this guy who's just teaching me all these nuggets. You know, when we go to the grocery stores, you know, he'll tell me, Jalal, you know, you do science, you do it in this way. You know, you have to, you know, tackle big questions. Obviously his mentor was Francis Crick who discovered the DNA um, double helix. So he had a, you know, he had a great mentor himself and he would teach me, you know, when you do science, tackle big questions. Don't go, don't go after these small questions in science, go after big things. And you may end up failing maybe, you know, nine times, but then one time, if you get it right, you know, it'd be, it'd be worth all the efforts, you know? So having this mentor just, you know, take my hand and, you know, just kind of mentor me. And then I would spend time with, you know, his family at his house. And um, so it's a grand adventure. I realized science is a grand adventure. And so this day, when I go visit him in California, I was just there recently. And same thing is like, you know, two friends is, re, you know, uh, a reunion of two friends. And we end up in the car and talking about the brain for three hours, getting lost on the freeway, you know. Oh, my God, I love it. So yeah, this is this is what science is supposed to be. It's supposed to be this uh, grand adventure, this this love affair with nature, you know. Yeah. Oh my gosh, what what it was so amazing that you just said was how he had plastic limbs, because yeah. I know a, le- a little bit about what he studies. So now I can see how he's inspiring his students mm. through whatever's. You know how you look around the classroom and you want to find inspiration for what you're learning. Yeah, yeah. I imagine his lesson on, you know, the the ghost limbs or whatever. I know I've I've heard him talk about the people that lose their limbs, how they still imagine if you look around and he could pick it up and oh yeah. Wow, that's just phenomenal. It's inspiring. I mean, you go to his lab and it's just this big museum, this, you know, this playground. And that's the way he does science. It's it's this, it's it's all fun, it's all play. And because I I always thought that science is supposed to be this boring thing. You wear this, you know, white uh, coat and you sort of you have to be this really uh hard-nosed, boring person. But I, I realized, my God, science is fascinating. I mean, you come up with these experiments and then potentially help people all around the world suffering from OCD, which is something we've studied or you know, depression or sleep disorders or anxiety. And, you know, so, so it's this combination, I think that he sort of um, embodies a lot, which is this, on the one hand, he has a lot of fun. It's interesting. It's, it's, you know, asking big questions and trying to understand what, you know, secret science, you know, nature has hidden and we want to sort of unravel all that. And then a combination of wanting to help patients and having this pleasure of seeing, you know, pain being alleviated from patients. So it's that combination that's really uniquely Rama that that has sort of, uh, I've tried to, you know, um, carry on that tradition, you know. Well, it's happening because until I heard your lectures, I don't think I would ever have admitted to having sleep paralysis. Uh, and, you know, you're the world's leading expert. I'm listening to you and you're explaining it exactly as I felt it like 20 years ago. And I would never tell anybody this except for the fact that you explained it. And I'm like, well, this has to be real. So can you explain what is sleep paralysis, why we become paralyzed in sleep 
and what happens to our brain to make this happen? Oh, absolutely. So sleep paralysis is fascinating. First of all, I mean, it's amazing. I had it myself. By amazing, I mean, it's interesting. Obviously, it's it's dreadful. It can be <laughs> terrifying. But I was sleeping in my bed one day um, in my parents' house, and I realized, my God, I can't move. I can't speak. And I'm paralyzed. What's happening? And then, you know, I was trying to move my legs, you know, nothing would happen in my arms. And I was kind of stuck there. And I felt like something was pressing on my chest. And I was like, my God, what's, what's pressing on my chest? And I was trying to scream. And, you know, the, you know, the, the intensity of fear just kept growing and just kept growing more and more and more. And then I thought, my God, there's actually a ghost. I felt like there was ghosts in the room, you know, my God, this ominous creature is here and is, is trying to kill me. You know, it has these evil intentions and I could literally like, uh, see and it's like um, imagine what he was thinking and stuff like oh, yeah. that so it's really evil you know and so I was feeling that and uh, you know I saw it, my leg going you know legs going up and down and it's the whole whole thing you know the whole thing um, whole nine yards and so from that that experience of sleep paralysis I was like what do I do like how do I go to my parents uh, I was a ghost in my room trying to kill me I didn't have a good track record back then in school I wasn't <laughs> the most uh, studious and disciplined kid. And uh, so what do I do about this? And I started to started to look into sleep paralysis and see what, it, uh, you know, what it was and, and things like that. And this took me on this long journey around the world to study this phenomenon and trying to understand what it is and what it what it means. And, you know, what I discovered uh, exceeded my wildest expectations in, in terms of what people will say, what sleep paralysis is and the sort of hallucinations. I mean, I felt there was a ghost in my room. And in fact, I've had sleep paralysis afterwards. I have it once in a while and I'll maybe see a copy of myself hovering over me, you know, things like that. But people will say all kinds of things, you know, in terms of seeing tigers or lions eating them and all kinds of bizarre you know, hallucinations people have. So in short, sleep paralysis, that's the sort of description of it. It's it's terrifying. It's, it's all these hallucinations you have and, and combined with this paralysis. Um, but really what happens in the brain, we have a part of the brain called the brainstem and the medulla and the pons, which is part of the brainstem, they have an inhibitory neurotransmitters. So you're completely paralyzed during the REM stage of sleep. So you have this paralysis during REM sleep. And now you might ask Andrea, why are you paralyzed during REM? Well, it turns out during rapid eye movement sleep, uh, which is one of the stages of sleep, you have vivid and lifelike crisp dreams. Okay, so it's very smart for your brain to paralyze your entire body so you don't act out your dreams and hurt yourself and your sleeping partner. So it's, it's a clever, clever trick that your brain has engineered like that, right? So we have this paralysis to uh, prevent us from acting out our dreams. But occasionally what can happen is your perceptual sensory systems of the cortex and other sensory regions can start prematurely becoming activated, even though you're paralyzed in REM, even though this REM paralysis system of the brainstem is still active. So on the one hand, you have the REM paralysis. On the other hand, you're waking up you know, perceptually and becoming sort of, sort of aware. So you're having this collision of wakefulness and the REM physiology of sleep. So you're sleeping and you're awake at the same time. And I know of no other condition in the entirety of medicine where you have these two worlds colliding. And so what will happen is also the sort of what we call REM mentation, which is REM imagery. The dream world of REM can literally spill over into your wakeful awareness. So you're lying there paralyzed and my God, you see a room, right? But then all the creatures and monsters and all that, which is part of your REM dreams. And by the way, during REM dreams, we usually have nightmares. It's or sort of not nightmares, but sort of negatively toned uh, 
uh, dreams. Uh, nightmares tend to be during the deep stage of sleep, although they can occur during REM, all right? It's off tangent, but anyway. So we have that, and then we are in REM. And so they can spill over into your wakeful awareness and you will see these monsters in your, you know, in your, in your room with you. So that is what, what sleep paralysis is. And it's, it's quite fascinating uh, to say the least. When I first heard you describe it, I thought, mm -hmm. well, why is it so scary? And yeah. like you explained that it, it felt like there was a ghost. I could actually see the ghost that was lying on me. And I'm in mm -hmm. my friend's house in Vancouver. She was oh, an yeah. actor on The X-Files. So I'm like, she already yeah. is used to scary things. And here mm -hmm. I'm saying there's a ghost in your basement. I'm not sleeping there ever again. And I could sense what this ghost was telling me like it was telling me the stuff is there really a ghost or is that my mind playing tricks on me oh yeah well so it's a good question is there literally a ghost so as a scientist i would say there isn't a ghost although i don't negate the spiritual world i mean i'm very open-minded and, and i think you know the spiritual realm could exist in parallel to this physical realm so I'm not like that. But uh, in terms of sleep paralysis, we can explain a lot of the stuff that's going on. So first of all, think about it this way. You have this emotional part of the brain called the uh, amygdala and the limbic system. Deep sort of tucked behind your ears, you have this emotional system, right? So this part of the brain, for some reason, uh, which is, again, explainable, but becomes it becomes hyperactive during the REM stage or during the sleep paralysis stage. So you go into this panic mode. Just having that per se, just biases towards all kinds of negative interpretations of sounds and physical sensations and all that. But also this region of the brain crosstalks with your sort of um, visual parts of the brain and a part of the brain called the orbitofrontal cortex, which literally just means a, is a piece of you know, brain up here, okay? And that part of the brain, we sort of make decisions about what sensory stimuli mean, okay? So what that, that's, that part of the brain does that. And so that combination of like having all this negative, you know, activation of, you know, feelings in the brain, and then interpret that will lead you to sort of interpret that in a negative way. And then you will literally, it will taint the visual world around you. Now, Andrea, we have this idea that the visual world we see is just senses, light signals coming to hitting our retina and going to our visual cortex, and then we interpret the world around it, around us. But it turns out there's actually more feedback going from your hippocampus, the memory parts of the brain and other cognitive areas, back to the visual cortex, you see? So it, it's, it tells us what to see. It's not literally us just seeing things, but we interpret and, and tell our brains what to see. So that's a huge part of it. And so we construct our visual and perceptual world like this. And so sleep paralysis is very much like that. And, and it's also very much driven by the cultural um, norms and ideas, uh, which is a huge part of my research in six or seven countries now, which it turns out like if you live in Timbuktu or well, that's just a fictitious example, but if you live in say Italy, in some parts of Italy, you will see witches, you will see giant cats. Okay. If you live in, let's say, um, South Africa, you will see the Tokolosha demons, just small little creatures that will come and do all kinds of mischievous things to you. Okay. And then if you live in um, Denmark, you're more likely just to have the general thing without the whole uh, sort of a uh, lot of hallucinations per se. You will have hallucinations, but no co cultural under, you know, current there because there's really no uh, major cultural idea for it. 
short story, I mean, this is a long-winded way of saying your culture can literally like influence you. So the cultural ideas will spill into your mind, okay, and into your brains. You have all these ideas in your in your in your you know cognitive repertoire, right? In your in your brain, and so these will feed into what you then see, and so this is a huge part of it. Um, so Holy. yeah. I never made that connection. I've heard you say that before, but until you said it now, because my, the thing that I was imagining, I, I just told you I was born in England and this guy mm -hmm. looked like, like an 18th century British guy. <laughs> I'm like with long curly hair, you know, I never right. thought maybe my culture or maybe the movies I watched growing up with my mom, you know, contained the, the images that I saw. Oh, yeah. That's so fascinating. Definitely. And we have all these, I mean, we have all these things that spill into, into our imagination uh, in an unconscious way, right, throughout our lives. We, you know, we've never realized, you maybe as a kid, you may have gone to some place and some castle or something and have seen something that just kind of uh, uh, stick, stuck with you, you know, all these years. So definitely, it's, it's a huge part of it. Wow. And so then, because it's so scary and terrifying, you've now become the world's leading expert on sleep paralysis. And I saw your recent TED talk, you listed that now you've designed the first treatment for sleep paralysis to help people who experience this regularly. Is that right? Well, there's, it's one of the first, there's another one as well that was, that was uh, done around the same time. So it's one of the first, but uh, really, yes, it's, it's a therapy that's that's used for for um, treating sleep paralysis. Um, that it's meant it's meant really to use to directly during the sleep paralysis events. You know, so whenever whenever I would have sleep paralysis, you know, and as I said, you know, I have it once in a while. Um, I always thought, can I manipulate this? You know, can I do certain things? Can I? Because I have like this conscious uh, agency awareness for you know at least seconds to minutes, right? So is there ways for me to sort of do something about it? And initially, I tried. Sometimes I thought. Well, let me try to imagine a ghost. Like what would happen if I could sort of play with the mental imagery and because not you don't always see the ghost, right? So I thought, what if I imagine a certain ghost? Could I create my own Frank Frankenstein monster? But you know, I didn't have the guts to do it, to be honest. You know, I was <laughs> terrified, right? So um, but but yeah, you know, I always play, play uh, you know, played around with that. And then I ended up, you know, saying, Well, look, what if you do certain steps, if you steps here, if you you know go through certain things that would make your brain more likely to, to, to not be as, you know, you know, panicky and you put all your attention on a positive things because we know attention is scarce, it's a scarce commodity of the brain. So if we can recruit that attention and use it towards, um, you know, towards something positive or, you know, thinking about something really po positive in a very focused manner, what could that do? And what if we avoid moving? Could that help? And this is, goes into my neuroscience theories and Ramachandran back in California. So it turns out movement uh, per se during sleep paralysis might not be a good idea. And the reason for this is that when you move, right? So whenever you move, you send out commands, you know, your, your brain send out these, these signals to your body saying, move, move. So these commands from the pre, uh, frontal areas, right? But then you also typically would CC uh, regions of the brain, CC as an email, like copy in the parietal regions, telling your brain to build a sense of a body image. So build a sense of Andrea or Balant. So we build that sense of a body image. Believe it or not, this feeling of being anchored in this flesh and body, we take it for granted, you know, but it's actually the brain that creates this feel, uh, feeling in a very vivid and, uh, you know, 
uh, a real way. This is a brain that does this. And that's why when you cut off a limb, in fan, you often have phantom limbs because that image, that self-representation is still intact. It doesn't know that the arm is missing. And so we have this body map, right? Okay, so, so, so you're sending all these signals, move, move, move. But then during sleep paralysis, there's no feedback coming back to that region telling you how to build a sense of a Balandor Andrea. Okay. And so your brain goes into this desperation mode. It says, what do I do now? I mean, there's no feedback coming back. What, you know, how can I sort of fill in this gap? And your brain, you know, it hates incongruency. It hates the, these incongruent situations and always want to fill in the blanks. You know, they just kind of fill in the story for you. So it says, look, I'm getting all this feedback going out to my body, but there's no feedback coming back. So to hell with it, I'm going to build the, your, your balance body image for him. So it will start telling my, my, my visual cortex and, my, and, you know, and, and me where my, my body is. And that's why you often see your legs. Remember my story I told you, I saw my legs going up and down. Wow. And so people all around the world would say, I, I see my body you know, spinning in the air or sort of sinking into the bed as in a sort of sinking in quicksand or they see themselves rotating in a, like a tornado. And so you have all these bodily hallucinations and, you know, seeing ghosts, we believe, is merely another manifestations of these bodily hallucinations. It's really just your own body image being projected out there. And that's why occasionally it's an out-of-body experience, meaning you see yourself out there. And then because of all the negative emotions, all the uh, negative emotions part of the brain being overactive, you'll say, okay, this guy, he looks like me, but why is he up there? And then you have a negative conversation. And the conversation is usually, who's the real me? The guy there or the me, right? So I've, I've had that, right? So, so you have that conversation. And then other times you'll say, no, it's actually a ghost. It cannot be me because what am I doing out there? So therefore it is a ghost and it's trying to attack me. And so when you have all this pressure, pressure on, the uh, on the chest, which is actually due to the fact that um, it has to do with the REM physiology again, the REM sleep. During REM sleep, you have automatic breathing. So your breathing is automatic. It's like... <sighs> And so during when you wake up during that REM stage and you try to control your breath, it will literally feel like something is pressing on you. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you have that, you see your, 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 like you have your chest being sort of pressed on and it can sometimes feel like somebody's strangling you as well because of the, you know, the, the airways. And then you feel like your, your leg is going up and down. Then you see your bloody shadow in the corner and your brain says, what's the chance of me feeling all this, seeing all this, you know, there must be a ghost here. And so your brain is a very, very efficient storyteller and it will just build this coherent narrative around all this and say, oh, this is the ghost from my England, you know, Andrea, from Europe when I saw when I was a kid and it, it, it's, it, it's, it's called, you know, this and that. It's in my room now. It's trying to kill me because it has this agenda. And so you project agency and intentions into it, which is kind of a theory of mind. We all create this theory of mind around what other people are thinking. Uh, and we sort of project and spill ideas into their brains. And so we build this whole scenario. That's in a short what's going on, you know. Oh, that was fascinating. And that ex answered so many questions that I had that I didn't even know until you're talking and, and I'm picturing it. And most of us have these crazy experiences, but we would just leave them out of our conversations because like, who wants to say, you know, there's like some British ghost like pushing on my chest and stuff. They're so weird. But back 20 years ago, I worked in the seminar industry and I 
when an asked a sleep specialist, you know, what is happening to me? Why do I see things in my head just before I go to sleep or just before I wake up? And he wrote down this word hypnagogia and he told me to go study that. Yeah, what, yeah. Why is this time so important before we go to sleep and when we wake up? So the, the thing is, um, what happened during this hypnagogic state, when you sort of drift into sleep, you have this, um, this weird, so you'll have this conscious awareness still to some extent of the wakefulness parts of the brain being active. Remember, you go through a certain stage and this has carries with it certain brain activity. So going from alpha, beta, you know, del, uh, you know delta and then rem and all, you know, so you have all these stages of brain activity going in various va- waves. So if you have some of that um, wakefulness activity initially, and then you hit the, um, if you go into the, the hypnagogic sleep state, right, what you can have is you, you have activation of visual cortex, right, as you go into sleep. And so the visual parts of the area will light up while you're still partially uh, aware of yourself and, uh, you know, and, um, you know, awake to some extent. And so that can lead to some of these hallucinations of you being aware of your, you know, or having flashes of light or seeing things. Um, so that's a good indication. It's just an interesting state. I mean, it's also a way to tap into creativity. I mean, a lot of these creative states are doing these, you know, half wake, half sleep stages, you know, stages because of the neurochemistry of sleep, as, as you, I'm sure you know. Uh, during the sleep stage, you have um, certain chemicals uh, being active and others being shut down. So, you know, the neuroadrenaline uh, and serotonin neurotransmitters, these uh, systems that activate these neurotransmitters are shut down you know, during the REM stage, for example. And so what's happening there is, well, it, it changes the way you think about the world and things like that. So noradrenaline, which is the, you know, you know that it's chemical cause and it's called adrenaline which in your body, which makes you sort of focused and it drives fear and it makes you very sort of direct and very, very specific, you know, very focused minded. And the reason is, is because it has this, it's sort of a uh, it's a it's a chemical your brain uses to sort of get out of scary situations if a bear is chasing you and stuff like that. Anyway, so during during REM, right? During REM, during REM sleep, your brain shuts down this chemical. And so your brain is much more open to sort of combining things in a much more creative way because you're no longer as focused. You're more likely to sort of, you know, um, think in an unfocused manner and link seemingly unrelated things in the world. And that makes you much more creative. It makes you much more likely to just to be more uh, expansive in your, in your way of thinking. I think it was Edison. I always mentioned, mentioned this Edison was used to, you know, when he was coming up with his, his ideas, he would sit on a chair and then he was sort of driven off to sleep with a spoon in his hand and the spoon and underneath his, you know, his, his, his chair was this, um, was this plate. And so as he was drifting off to sleep, he would just kind of think about his ideas. And then, and then as he was fall asleep, the, the, the spoon would fall down and, and, and destroy the, 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 um, the plate and he would wake up. But he had these few seconds of conscious awareness, which would make him sort of come up with new ideas for his work. So it is a very creative um, and interesting um, stage of our lives. That's interesting because I've often seen things that because I write down my dreams and have since the late nineties, I can look back. And some of the things that I've seen have been like, almost like premonitions of things that were going to happen 20 years later. And I can only notice that by going back and it happens in that time. So do you think we can see things or what, what do you think about writing down dreams? 
Now, now you're going into a very deep uh, questions, Andrea, here. Okay, so, <laughs> no, that's good. That's why we're here, right? right. So premonition. So premonition, uh, seeing into the future, you know, as the, as the prophets of the, you know, the Testament, the Quran, and all these magnificent scriptures would, you know, have these dreams that would come, would come true many years later. So the question is, is that, you know, consistent with brain, uh, dream science and brain science? The thing is, it's sort of outside the scope of science. So personally, I'm very open to ideas of, of spirituality, religion, and stuff like that. But there's clearly uh, no evidence as of yet of the fact that, you know, we can have premonitions, that we can have things that would come true many years later. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't, it's not true. In fact, you may, as a scientist, you may believe in it as a scientist, but you just have to be clear and say, this is not yet proven because it just goes again against our scientific knowledge. And in fact, uh, the world that we know in physics does not support that as of yet, but who knows? Hundred years ago, hundred years ago, if you talked about small bacteria on your skin right now, like small creatures on your skin, there's a trillions of these on your skin. You say, "My God, this guy's crazy!" But then we, you know, invented the microscope and we look, and turns out one out of uh, ten, like nine out of ten cells, are actual bacterial cells. So you're this big bacterial colony walking around, but you know, we ne we never knew until we discovered the microscope. So the the point is. Uh, premonitions and, and things like that is not yet shown by science, but uh, we should be open-minded and just say, you know, it's very interesting and you can believe in it, in it personally, but as, as of science, that has just yet to be sort of uh, discovered. Got it. So while I'm on these weird questions, I have another one. And this one, when I sent the questions to you, I put it in yellow highlighter. Is this too weird of a question? Oh, no. Because it's now this one's about lucid dreaming. And when I when I wrote the questions originally, this is back in April when we we're first trying to set this up. I didn't have any research on this in the past. I, I knew nothing about it. So mm -hmm. like I was just before I go to sleep or just before I wake up, my eyes are closed, but I can feel them opening and then I can see a vision of something in, in yep. there. And I think it's a lucid dream, but I don't know. And like yeah. one, of, one of the examples, I can see this hallway and I can see people walking and I know who they are because it's like mm -hmm. real people. But yep. how do I see people in my head is this is lucid dreaming real or am i making this up and then the one other thing that's weird with it and it's new that just happened i could actually stop the people walking and almost like you know a video when you pan in uh, you can expand it i could pan in on the hallway and i could look from the ceiling to the ground and see the pictures on the wall i'm like i know i'm seeing this and I'd yeah. never been there before. What yeah. is that? Is is this real or what? Yeah, it's fascinating. It's very fat. It's it's amazing. And I've had similar dreams. I mean, I met people in my dreams that were like striking, striking people. You know, uh, I remember seeing a girl in my dreams. One, you know, once I was striking or something. My God, like I would have known in real life had I met her. You know what I mean? Like it's, uh, you know, there's always these things. Like, well, how do these people show up in my dreams? Like, who are they? Yeah. And um, and lucid dreams are very real. And so it's one of those examples of something that it turns out it's very spooky, it's mysterious, but now there's science to prove that it is real. It's part of the brain uh, known, known as the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex areas. Fancy name for structure up here in this region of the brain that has to do with agency or awareness. When we are awake, we, this is very much active. So I I'm aware of myself. 
you know? And so during that, you know, during sleep, during REM sleep, you lose that sense of agency and awareness. So you don't know, you don't know you're dreaming when you're dreaming. That's the whole thing. So you're wandering around in this world, which is extremely immersive and lifelike and real, like it feels real, but you don't know you're dreaming when you dream that you're dreaming. And that's, that's important because it makes it, it makes it much more immersive. It makes it feel real. And so it activates your circuits in a much more intense way. You see, but that's a good thing. Now, occasionally what happens if you are in this REM dream, if you're having a REM dream and you are seeing yourself, you know, in some weird, bizarre land and in the moon, you know, having a chat with, uh, you know, Elvis Presley up, up there. Okay. And so this part of the brain becomes prematurely active, this dorsolateral prefrontal, and you start getting sort of sensory awareness, even though you're in REM sleeping. And what that would lead you to is to have a lucid dream where you're aware of your, aware of your dreams. You fact, you, you actually know that you're dreaming when you're dreaming. And so that's real. And so it's fascinating. Now, what do you do in a lucid dream? You know, I've had those. So you you say, my God, okay, now I know I'm dreaming. What, what the heck, what the heck do I do? Right? What do I do about this? And so occasionally what you can do is you can just sort of start, you know, uh, manipulating objects in the dream and doing certain things. And you can meet people, you can fly, which is one of the most common lucid dreams is flying. And so you do all this, it's, it's fascinating and it's very real. Um, so, but it's 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 interesting and and um so did i answer your question i think yeah. I kind of, uh... yeah no you did so it's real so when i'm there in the lucid dream wouldn't it be cool if i could take a pen from someone's desk back to my office here because i'm always out of pens so you mentioned yeah. that you put a piece of paper in your pajama pocket and oh, yeah and then yeah. you got back and you look for it can you explain is it was it not there because we're mentally there? We're not physically there. We can't physically take something back. Is it's that- a great question. Yes. Yeah, so what is that? What is all that uh, that about? You know, it's it's one of those things. It's it's uh, it's as a brain science. Sometimes we do funny stuff. You know, we do sort of uh, you know, do these things. So you know, Rama and I, Ramachandran and I had these ideas, you know, a lot, you know, a long time ago when we were chatting uh, back in California, but, you know, what if you have these people with an out-of-body experience or, you know, near-death experiences and things like that? So these people will claim that when they are about to die or in a sort of surgical state, you know, comatose or whatever, they will see themselves sometimes seeing this, the surgeon operate, you know, doing the surgery on them, you know, they will see the room and things like that. Now, the, the people that are skeptical and the scientist types would say, well, it's just your brain, you know, the parts of the brain that has to do with uh, sense of awareness and body image and sense of self is deprived of oxygen. So you get projected out there, right? That's the scientific uh, worldview. Um, now, so we've said, what if, and this is, I think this has been done by the way, but what if these guys could actually tell you uh, about a certain a secret piece of paper somewhere hidden in the room and then they'll be able to tell you this was up there or give you some kind of a indication that this was actually actually a real empirical event okay so this is this is the idea right uh-huh. now um in terms of all that i once you know had a sleep paralysis episode and i became lucid in my sleep paralysis meaning i sort of could leave my physical body and so i sort of just left my physical body during the sleep paralysis episode meaning 
Meaning, you know, I was dreaming. So the dreaming self was having a dream about my, my apartment. Obviously, I wasn't actually one walking around in my apartment, but it felt like that. It was a dream. And so I started to walk around in my apartment in my dream, and I saw this piece of paper. And I was aware of myself, by the way. I, I knew how to sleep paralysis and all that. And I thought, okay, what happens if I take that back, you know, put it in my PJs and my pajamas and go back to my physical body? You know, what would happen? Would I actually wake up and the paper would still be there? Would that be, would be amazing? You know, I was having these thoughts. So doing a scientific experiment while sleeping was the idea. And so I did that and I put it in my pockets, you know, my pocket and went back to my physical self. And I turned out when I woke up, it wasn't there. Okay. So it wasn't there, unfortunately, you know, as, as I always say in joking, but the thing is, would you really expect it to be there? I mean, even, even if as another realm exists, obviously this is outside the scope of science, but even if it exists, it certainly wouldn't be in this physical realm. So even, so my point is, my, my point, what I would say as a scientist, I believe wholeheartedly in the scientific narrative because I have to, it's my job, right? It's what I do. I have to stick to the data and the science, but I'm open-minded to other ideas of spirituality and religion and all that personally. I'm open to that, definitely. Okay, for sure. When it comes to things like out-of-body experiences and near-death experiences and things like that, just because the brain can explain it and you have a brain event, such as you know, uh, your, your oxi- you know, oxi- you know, oxygen being deprived in certain regions of the brain or certain parts of the brain being overactive, like the temporal lobes, and you have a spiritual experience, doesn't mean that the spiritual world isn't real. It doesn't mean that religion and God and all that isn't real. I mean, that can always coexist. And as scientists, we shouldn't be that scared and that, you know, defensive and say, oh, my God, I can't study science, you know, because if I do that, you know, I will negate the religious and spiritual world. And that's nonsense because, you know, you can still believe in that and that can still be true. And you should just be courageous enough to accept But look, your brain can play all these tricks on you. If you have temporal lobe epilepsy, so tucked behind your ears and your temporal lobes and the emotional parts of the brain, those regions, if you have epileptic seizures, all this electrical electrical, activity going on there and just, you know, you know, you know, flaming up your brain, then you will have all these spiritual experiences and feel like, you know, God is everywhere and things are spiritual and bizarre and strange. But, you know, that's the brain telling you what to believe and think and, and, and stuff like that and but it still doesn't negate that real world is that is that clear or, or am i too sort of mystical on you right now the point is yeah, we should open, right just be yeah, we have to be we have to be very open-minded but as a science as a scientist we have to be very rigorously sort of stick to the data and the science and because that's how we make progress if you start becoming delusional and not stick to the science and the what's going on there then science can't progress and we can't you know make machines that are going to fly from england to, to Arizona, right? If we are, you know, having all these magical beliefs, we have to be very scientific and very hard-nosed when it comes to the science, but open-minded and makes small steps. But then in your private life, then you can be spiritual, you can have religion, and the science doesn't negate all that. So that's my position on this. And actually, so, yeah, that's really my, my view. So, so what about using lucid dreaming, if you could, for mental rehearsal, if you're an athlete? Like, it, you know, is, is it almost like visualization? Could it be used to help improve skills like this for athletes? Do you think? It's a good question. Could, could it? Yeah, I think it possibly could. I mean, if you could visualize yourself doing certain things, you know, you visualize yourself, you know, with the baseball and you see that over and over again, would that help? Certainly, I think 
you know, the brain is, is amazing and, and being able to do certain activities and lay down this. I mean, the whole point, uh, I think a lot of scientists will tell you, dream scientists, for example, that the reason why you have these virtual, these very immersive lifelike dreams where you see yourself running in the forest and, the, you know, bears chasing you. And we can explain why the bear, what the, you know, what that represents too, right? That's just your emotional brain being overactive and competing with your motor cortex being underactive. And so you have all that. And then it's so immersive, but, and, and you see yourself in that scenario. And what it does, it lays down these new, new circuits in the brain that become strengthened. And so the next time when you are in that scenario, you're more likely to survive because you already faced that scenario in real life or sorry, in your dream, which felt real. Okay. So what you're doing is your dream, your brain is actually what it says. It says, look, we are relaxing and we're doing all this, all this, you know, these, these house, you know, chores and cleaning up your cells and having all these activities during this, 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 this sleep stage, right? As you said, one third of our lives is spent dream, uh, sleeping and one third of our, your, you know, uh, sleep is dreaming something of that nature, if not more. I mean, we dream a lot. And, and so the point is, these dreams have a function, and the, one of the functions, uh, a key function, is is to imagine yourself in weird scenarios, and your brain just doing all these kinds of things, and then, and then when you then you know encounter these things in real life, when you actually see yourself being chased, uh, you know, by that bear, you already have some of those, these circuits laid down, and and have you know being very strong, and so you're more likely to survive. So it's a way of, it's a way of training your brain, you know, in a in a in a very uh, smart way. So. Definitely. And so going back to your question, could you, it could say, you know, people like athletes and stuff like that use some of these techniques? I think so. I think so. I think if you can have lucid dreaming or, you know, uh, and you can see yourself doing certain things, I mean, it's not easy because you have to, first of all, you have to be very sort of, you know, you have to be very good at going into a lucid dream, you know, and, and you can sort of use some of these um, goggles and things you can wear. So are you aware of these? These are goggles you wear. So these are actually very interesting. So these are goggles, you will wear them. And then you will, you will be, you, you will know that if you see a flashing light, like three flashes of light, that means you're dreaming. So then you go to sleep and you're, and this, you know, perhaps it's monitoring that you aren't now in a dream stage or REM stage, you could do that. So it's monitoring that. And then when you are in REM, you see, you know, in your dream, you're, you're Arizona desert, right? You're doing something there. And then you see these big flashes of light, you know, and then that could, then, you know, oh my God, I knew that if I see three flashes, that means I'm dreaming. And then you start becoming uh, lucid. You start, that's one of the way to become lucid is actually seeing as something that's so bizarre that you say, oh, this can only be a dream. And so seeing it, so the, the goggles will help you sort of slide into a lucid dream. And so if you can use those goggles and then do certain activities, but I want to be realistic. I mean, the lucid dream is so elusive. I mean, you're, you're there and then you're not there and then you can control it, but then you cannot control it. it it's not that crisp usually, but I mean, who, who knows? Maybe it can be in certain scenarios for certain people. It could be used. I, I think mental imagery for sure, like closing your eyes and meditating and things like that. And partially maybe going into a meditative sleep-like state could be helpful. Um, and, and lucid dreamings, lucid dreaming, uh, who, who knows, perhaps I'm, I'm open well, to that. I think it's interesting. So interesting because with the lucid dreaming, it's hard to control it, right? Like 
I I took a nap yesterday just to test this. I'm like, I had like an hour and a half. I'm like, we've got our interview today and I wear these measurable devices so I can tell that I've gone into REM sleep. And I'm like, let me try to see if I can do like a, create a lucid dream. Uh, and then I can talk about it on the interview, but there's no way I can't control it. It either happens randomly or not, you know, so that's, that's mm-hmm. the part, the goggles maybe could help get there, but I, I've not known a way to enter a lucid dream on purpose. I agree. It is, it's a, it's very tricky, tricky. It's a very slippery slope, that whole lucid dreaming world. I mean, uh, you know, you, you're lucid and then you're not lucid and then you can control parts of it. And then you're just aware, but cannot control it. That's another part. I mean, lucid dream, you don't always control the dream. You're just aware of it sometimes. And it depends on how active these centers of the brain are. I mean, I want to say, okay, if you could activate these regions of the brain, the DLPVC, this region, you know, in a, in a artificial way, let's say, uh, 10, 20, 30 years from now, somebody in Silicon Valley is able to put a chip, chip in your brain and then, or not even a chip and just cause it's the cortex. And maybe you can do it just by stimulating from outside and then you're know, stimulating in it just the right amount. So you become aware and being able to control your dream in the right amount. Well, then that would be, um, then that would be plausible. But yeah, for now, I think it is a bit tricky, but uh, who knows, maybe people are playing around with, with this already. Uh, yeah. Oh, it's interesting because the Netflix shows are are talking about it. And then there is another question that I have. It was testing yourself to see if you're dreaming or not. And Mm. I never thought about this before, but like, because sometimes you don't know, am I dreaming? And and in my head, I can see like my eyes are closed, but I can see this vision. So is it possible like in the matrix, you know, Neo puts his hand on the wall and it goes through, it's a dream, or if it stays Mm -hmm. on the wall, is it's real. Is is testing possible to see are you dreaming or not or what? It's a good question. Actually, I had, have you seen Inception? I've actually had that dream. No. So there's, in that movie, there's this uh, thing, a spinning thing that the you know the, the oh, I know what you mean. Yeah, is, yeah, yeah. It's spin, and if it keeps spinning, that means it's a dream. It never stops. And if it sort of falls over, it means it's it's uh, real life. I actually dreamt of one of those recently, so it's funny you you mentioned that. Um, but is there a way of doing any kind of testing in your dream to know you're dreaming? Um, it's a good question. So obviously this world, when you're awake, okay, now we're going into philosophy, okay? But that's okay, I can do that. So right now, obviously, how do you know this right here is not a dream? And I mean, just, I'm being serious. Like, how do you know? Well, because I can physically touch my desk. Um, I'm thinking. I, I'm, uh, what was, oh, I'm reading. If you're dreaming, you can't read. Is that true? Like it's a good, it's a good question. It's a, so, so I'm being part partially playful. I, I agree. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's weird because, because touching things you can do in your dreams, you can, okay. you can touch things. Okay. And you can, to some extent, you feel like you, you, you can see things. And so you're basically having this sensory experience, right. Um, that feels real. And you're, it, it's like, you just don't know you're dreaming. For the most part, I mean, aside from lucid dreams. So the question is, there's something about this world, which is clear. You know you're not dreaming now, right? I mean, there's some gravitas. There's some something about it that makes it very very concrete and solid. During the dream stage, it's it's different. It's some, There's something bizarre. It's something, 
something on the laws of nature. They, they are there and then they're not there, you know, like you see yourself in all these different dimension and dimensions and things are really, you know, you know, out there, you know, things are very strange. And so how would you do any kind of reality testing? It's a good question. Can you, um, so one of the ways to slide into, so obviously if you become aware then in your dream, you would have a lucid dream, right? That we agree on that, right? So if you are in a dream and you become aware that you're dreaming, then you by definition have a lucid dream. So one of the ways that people you know, enter into lucid dreams is through like seeing a, 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 like a deceased ancestor or seeing Shakespeare, for example, or Napoleon or something like that. And they go, oh my God, Napoleon is in my dream. This can't be real. Therefore, I'm dreaming, and then they start becoming lucid. So these kind of things can be a window into uh, lucidity per se. Um, but other than that, um, reality testing, it's hard because there's your brain is very good at inhibiting your awareness of the dream. It's, it's, it has a, must have an adaptive function that's very important. And I think, and I think it has to do with the fact that it has this survival reason, this survival factor. It's like virtual reality, Andrea. If I put virtual reality on you right now and I put you in this forest with, or, you know, in this, this, you know, Africa with like lions and stuff, you know, chasing you, right? You have all that, but you know, it's VR. So you may be a bit scared. You maybe have a bit adrenaline, you know, going on, you know, you have all this, but you still know it's this VR. So it's never the real thing. But if I, if I had a device to knock out your sense of awareness, and now you thought you were actually there, your brain and the circuitry will would, would rewire in much more potent way because now it's much more immersive. So your brain is clever and it knows it needs you not to know it's a dream. And that's the whole point. So, um, but yeah, in terms of, of of that, that I think is is it's it's hard. Um, yeah, so let's look at it the other way around. So you, you know, narcolepsy, you know, narcolepsy is a very interesting um, uh, neurological or you know rare sleep disorder where patients will fall asleep during wake, like taking a walk in the park to yeah. just fall asleep. Or I usually say if you fall asleep through one of my you know during one of my colleagues' lectures. You know that wouldn't be surprising. It's a boring lecture. But if 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 the speaker falls asleep during his own lecture, maybe he has narcolepsy. So literally, you walk around somewhere and you know, and then you play tennis and you fall asleep. That's that's narcolepsy. It's a neurological disorder. Now these people have a lot of difficulty, um, you know, between the real world and the dream world, meaning the deciphering and discerning which which one is what. So. In, in the sense, I mean, they're not schizophrenics, but in the sense that, for example, they would often not know if they sent that email to the boss or it was merely a dream. So they have to do the real, these reality checks, right. okay? So, so they, they lose the knowledge somehow of the, the, the uh, what is real, what was merely a dream. So it shows you these worlds. You know, I had a mentor once uh, in Copenhagen, actually, um, when I was a young man, I was very, very, you know, in my teens, and he said, you know, one thing you never want to do, because he saw me, I was like being very intense with reading books and science. And it was just insane. It was like all the time, you know, and, and I was doing this, you know, and he said one thing, and I was telling him about you know, seeing flashes of books in my dreams on pages of books. I'm seeing them. And I said to my mentor, I'm seeing these flashes, these books. Right. And he said, one thing, Baland, you never want to do is, you know, you never want to blur that line between the dream world and the real world because that's insanity, you know, right there. So I think there's a reason for us that that we want to keep a clear line between the dream world and the real world. And, and that is because it's a bizarre, strange, and 
very potently strong world where the neurochemistry is on steroids. Some of these chemicals like the serotonin 2A receptor activity, meaning a fancy name for the same activity of the brain that'd be active by using psilocybin or LSD, right? Where everything is cosmic and meaningful and things are powerfully potent. So your brain knows, I don't wanna um, confuse this with real life. I don't want this person to even know that he's dreaming. And I want him, in fact, to forget all this. So we forget our dreams. And that's actually, that's the reason because dreams are so powerfully strong um, and so we, we don't want to remember all these, you know, eight hours of, uh, or whatever you're dreaming of, of insane Hollywood, uh, entertainment, uh, you know, so. Yeah, no, exactly. So, you know, I could keep asking you questions and I would love to be in a car with you and drive around and not get off the exit and just keep asking you more questions, but we're coming to the end of the hour here. What should people, um, what do you want people to take away from your work and is the best place to follow you on YouTube? Where, where can people reach you? Yeah, so they can follow me um, on Instagram, on, on, on Facebook, I'm on YouTube, whenever. I mean, I, I wish I'd use these platforms more, but you know, we keep busy with our works, trying to, trying to uh, do good in the world as much as we can. I think that the purpose and the reason why we do science, I think, should always be to have a bigger mission, trying to help people. Science is interesting, it's fascinating. I mean, we just we just touched upon, you know, we barely scratched the surface here in terms of the interesting, how interesting science and the brain is, and, you know. So it's it's interesting for its own sake, but I always had a clinical angle. And I always had a cr- clinical purpose, wanting to help alleviate suffering and pain in the world. So as I saw, you know, I saw a lot of suffering. So I saw alcoholics in my neighborhood. I saw a lot of things. And so having a grand mission to help people in the world will give you a more fulfilling life. So whatever you do, whether it's science or whatever it is, have this grand mission of wanting to give back and help people and lift up people that, uh, you know, that, that, that need a hand. And so that's, that's the reason I, I do what I do, trying to um, achieve these both things, having fun, you know, being passionate, but then also trying to have a bigger mission of, of trying to uh, do good in the world. That's absolutely why I needed to have you on the podcast, Dr. Jalal. I want to thank you so much. You've opened up my awareness so much, even just watching before we had this interview. And then during, I know that my level of awareness expanded and those listening, I'm sure they will. You helped me to connect how our brain connects to the dream world. I hope it helps others to not be afraid of what they're seeing during their REM sleep and keep searching for answers to help them in their waking hours, whatever it is people are working on. It's been such a pleasure to meet you. Thank you. The pleasure has been mine. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episodes. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com.